0: Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Sam Prynne. I discuss the pros and cons of rent control, analyzing the relationship between First Nations and Canadian provinces. Millions of people are sweltering in a global heat wave. We bring you to the Hamilton Fringe Fest and the South Coast Jazz Festival. And the latest fashion trend is... Well, find out next on the GMH podcast.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Soaring rental rates have not only been in the news of late, but they are also a troubling reality for millions of Canadians, including many here in Hamilton. The average rent for a one-bedroom unit in Hamilton, as we found out well, a couple of weeks ago, $1,870 a month. That's 15% higher than compared to last year at this time. About $300 more this year compared to last year. If you're looking at a two-bedroom apartment in the city, that price has jumped 12% to nearly $2,300. And yesterday we learned here on the show that the hourly wage needed to afford an apartment in Hamilton is way more than the minimum wage. So the question is, is expanding rent control the right answer? Dr. Mike Moffitt is an assistant professor of business, economics and public policy at the Ivy School of Business at Western University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Uh, let's start with the basics. How does rent control work?
2: Well, let's uh, look here in Ontario. If you uh, rent a, uh, an apartment building uh, that was or an apartment unit in a building that was built before 2018, um, the uh, Federal, uh, the provincial government sets a limit of how much your rent can go up each year. It's somewhat tied to inflation. So here in Ontario, uh, if you stay in your building, your rent can only go up 2.5% per year. Again, as long as you're in a building built before 2018, which is about like 98% of, of rental units.
0: Now, one of the issues is that when a tenant leaves... That rent can go up. The landlord can rent or can hike the rent, which has led to a lot of rent evictions, which is a big problem.
2: It, it absolutely is, and it's one of the sort of downsides to rent control is that it leaves so many other options uh, for renters. So I'll give one example. A friend of mine here, I, I'm in Ottawa right now. Uh, she is in a building that was built in the 1930s. Uh, she's been there for for 10 years. She just got a note from from her landlord saying, "Sorry, my uh, my 25 year old daughter uh, needs this unit, so you're going to have to move out uh, at, at the end of the month." And unfortunately, there's not much uh, my friend can do about it. So it's it's really unfortunate that uh, we have this situation where you know the landlords do have the option of uh, you know displacing tenants and then bringing tenants back new tenants in. At much higher prices.
0: Given that example, is it fair to say that landlords have a little too much power?
2: Well, they do in, in the sense that it just comes down to supply and demand. That uh, you know we have very few rental units and a whole lot of renters, so that creates a situation where uh, the landlords have all of the power just because of these market dynamics. And you know we can try and come up with uh, you know different regulations, whether it be rent control or something else. But we can't – that doesn't affect that sort of market dynamic, that landlords are still going to have the power so long as we have this shortage of rental properties. And ideally, what we need to do is increase the supply of rental properties, bring some balance back in the market between uh, between renters and landlords.
0: Big factor in that market dynamic is that there's not a lot of homes – available or affordable for those who are in a rental situation right now and that has really put a crimp on the supply when it comes to the rental stock out there
2: yeah absolutely so if you look at the the demand for rental properties it's essentially coming from uh two places that the first our population is growing Uh, we've had increases in the number of international students temporary foreign workers all of which rent so we have this big increase in the number of people who rent but also on people who've been here a while, uh, you know, these higher interest rates have basically made it impossible for them to buy ownership property. So people are staying in their rentals longer because they have nowhere else to go. So absolutely, we're seeing these big, big increases in the demand uh, for rental units. Not much increase in the supply.
0: We're talking about rent control with Dr. Mike Moffat, assistant professor of business, economics, and public policy at the Ivy School of Business at Western University. And you're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. There's two sides to this coin. We have supporters of rent control who say this is needed because it prevents price gouging. Developers, on the other hand, say it doesn't lead to any new construction. Are both true?
2: Well, I, I think there is some, some truth to both. Yeah, that that absolutely we need to have protection for renters. I mean, absolutely no question about, about that. Unfortunately, just rent control by itself doesn't provide that much protection for renters because, again, you can uh, you can evict tenants for all kinds of reasons saying, okay, you're going to renovate the unit or that you have a child or a parent that's going to move in there or, or so on. So landlords still have all, even with rent control, landlords still have all kinds of tools to to get increased rents. But as well, that the more sort of regulations uh, you put on uh, the rental market, that does cause uh, developers to say, well, instead of this new apartment building, instead of me renting it out, why don't I just sell the units as condos and kind of wash my hands of this and I don't have to worry about all of these rules? And that's what we've seen over the last 30 to 40 years, that every time a new apartment ca- gets uh, put up, it ends ends up getting structured as condo, where the condos where the developers sell the units rather than rent them out.
0: Great conversation, and I'm not sure we're any closer to a, a, a solution that's going to make everyone happy, but we'll have to leave it there. Dr. Moffitt, thanks for your time today.
2: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: That is Dr. Mike Moffitt, Assistant Professor of Business, Economics, and Public Policy at the Ivy School of Business at Western University.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Uh, a new report out is outlining how relations between First Nations and provinces here in Canada are impacted. By conceptions of sovereignty and diplomacy, when we think about indigenous peoples, I think we instantly think of, you know, what is the federal government doing to help indigenous people? How are they? How are they? What is the relationship like? We don't really think about the provincial relationship that we have with indigenous peoples. Liam Metzangoban is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Brock University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Liam, good morning. How are you?
3: Excellent. How are you doing?
0: I'm. I'm fantastic. So this new report that you co-authored has been published by the Center of Excellence on Canadian Federation at the Institute of Research on Public Policy, and yes. you you examined the relationship between Indigenous peoples and provincial governments. Why why focus on that?
3: So uh, when me and my co-authors uh, were looking out at the landscape, just as your intro kind of alluded to, we noticed that all a lot of the media attention and really a lot of the scholarly attention focuses on uh, the federal government's role and like look that makes a certain degree of sense right because what the uh, constitution does is it sets uh indians and lands uh lands um, reserved for indians under federal control and so we tend to think like that is that's that. It's the federal government's relationship with First Nations. It's the federal crown, um, in our in our language. But when you really dig into things, it's actually the provinces that have uh, numerous, potentially more, certainly hundreds, if not thousands, of interactions on a policy level with First Nations. So how so? Um, and it's, what is it's only First provincial? Nations that we look at, and yeah. so that's not even including Inuit or uh,
0: Métis. So what's happening at the provincial level that has a greater impact of what the federal government can do?
3: So there's a few things. Um, One of the things we don't really look at, but is really important, is urban indigenous peoples. And that's actually the majority of indigenous peoples across the country. And so like that is a that is a huge area. But really, when we start thinking about it, it's questions like resource development, Uh, lands are uh, reserved for provincial powers. Um, And so it's actually provinces that do a lot of the work around that and especially conservation um when you start thinking about healthcare if we start thinking about child and family welfare if we think about a lot of the judicial system that uh, First Nations uh, interact with um that is all provincial responsibility so when you start looking at the different policy areas it's like provinces have a huge impact
0: do you think this will lead to any kind of change or are you are you making any recommendations
3: yeah so we hope it'll lead to some change um we really wanted to do two things with the paper the first was analyze the kind of state of play of these provincial relationships. Uh, And we look at British Columbia and New Brunswick as two different models for how to engage, or in the case of New Brunswick, try their best not to engage with First Nations. Um, And then the second thing we wanted to do was more along the lines of what you just asked, which is offer some recommendations. And really, we see our recommendations coming in the form of a new vision for the relationship or a new model, and that's para-diplomatic relations. And so that's very much a diplomatic framing. It is understanding that First Nations maintain sovereign authority. Um, that's something that we just saw in the 1492 Land Back Lane case uh, with Skylar Williams that uh, had just had his charges dismissed. It's Hodenosaunee, the Haudenosaunee public and Haudenosaunee law that's upheld as uh, the standard in that in that case. And so, like we want to say, hey, provinces, you need to re- recognize that First Nations maintain sovereign authority and work within that.
0: And that would certainly be a win-win scenario, would it not? I mean, what, what are the provinces afraid of?
3: Well, that's our argument. It, uh, it is a win-win. What we really try to focus on uh, in some respects is the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Now, British Columbia, one of our case studies, has started to implement it. Um, it was actually one of the first jurisdictions in the Western world and the first certainly in Canada. New Brunswick has rejected UNDRIP or the Declaration. Um, other provinces like Saskatchewan, Ontario, um, they've also rejected it. And their argument is essentially that, well, it'll create too much instability, right? If First Nations in this case have a veto over what development projects can go forward or what policies can be put in place, well, what you're going to start seeing is governments unable to really do anything. That's that's the story they're trying to tell. Huh. What we actually see when we start looking at uh, the, the issues on the ground is that, I mean, there's already a lot of instability. Um, What we're seeing are resource projects or policy decisions that are held up in courts for 10, 15, sometimes 20 years, um, battling between different levels. We have governments that can make decisions, but that those decisions can't be implemented. Instead, if we start thinking along para-diplomatic lines and start building durable relationships, that could be at policy tables, that could be a sort of ambassadorial type positions kind of um, that are meant to, from provincial governments to, to build relationships with with First Nations. Like if we start seeing that and ongoing engagement instead of one-off consultations on particular issues, you're going to start to see problems not only be identified early, but also resolved more quickly because you're not only bringing more expertise to the table, but you are engaging regularly and you are developing policy that meets First Nations needs as well, uh, as well as reflecting their sovereignty, which courts are beginning to to start to strike down provincial legislation that that doesn't meet that bar.
0: Makes a lot of sense. Liam, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for sharing uh, your insight in this new report.
3: Thanks so much, Rick. Have
0: a great day. You too. Liam Adzan Goban is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Brock University.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. From 900 CHML.
0: In places like the southern U.S. or in Europe or in parts of Asia, we're talking 40 plus. And not just a day or two, but I mean day in and day out, that is a heat wave. And, well, there are a number of factors to blame. First and foremost, climate change. Many people also pointing to El Nino, which is warmer than ever, thanks to... Climate change.
1: I am El Nino. All other tropical storms must bow before El Niño. Yo soy El Nino. For those of you who don't habla Espanol, El Nino is Spanish for the niño.
0: All kidding aside, this is serious stuff because our planet is basically on fire. People are dying, others suffering mightily. Here to talk about it is Atlaf Arain, Professor of Earth, Environment, and Society and the Director of the McMaster Center for Climate Change at McMaster University. Professor Arayn, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. We've heard about oppressive heat waves in places like Europe, for example, in previous years, but what makes this
4: one different? Uh, yes. Uh, we are every year Uh, our greenhouse gas emissions, our CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere are increasing. So every year we are warming little bit, little bit, little bit. And once in a while, we have this big atmospheric circulation uh, changes and uh, ocean circulation changes, we call them El Niño. When El Niño year comes, then these changes are a little bit enhanced. So a little bit more warming, that we see uh, this year would be caused by El Nino, but we have to remember that we are on the warming trajectory already. So these oscillations, these uh, heat waves become more intense, more prevalent into more areas in, or into different areas where we haven't seen them in the past. So, so this is uh, what the ca- uh, w- this year makes uh, some difference. So that's why we have a lot of records breaking in different parts. Uh, but uh, we should remember that it's not all caused by El Nino. El Nino is enhancing a bit, but we are under warming and the global climate models uh, scientists have been predicting that we will have increase uh, in the heat waves and other extreme events going forward. So we're seeing temperatures like 53 Celsius
0: in Death Valley, which is in the California, Nevada area. We're seeing 50 degrees in China, 40 degrees in places like Japan, which would be an all-time record. Uh, This is quite concerning, and it's not only the high temperatures, but the length of time that these heat waves are persisting for. Are we at a point of no return?
4: I I would say that we are approaching that point. Uh, The scientists have warned uh, warned, uh, again and again that uh, we should keep our warming uh, below 1.5 degrees. So that's kind of a threshold uh, scientists has been advocating. Uh, It won't be surprising that we temporarily hit. We are not that far from that uh, threshold, but if there are actions in place, uh, we may still uh, make difference. I think the debate is uh, not like uh, we will go back to where we were like uh, two decades ago. the The discussion is how worst we want to be, or how worst it can be going forward. So, so it's stabilizing uh, climate or greenhouse gas emissions and the warming trend uh, is the key uh, goal right now. Uh, because going forward we'll see more frequent more longer more intense uh, extreme events uh, they can be heat wave later on they may be flooding uh, so so these uh, have been predicted and we see this in uh, different areas so if you ask the research community they are not surprised to see uh, this kind of weather patterns uh, this is what uh, was expected uh, going forward and I would I would say this is like a window to the future. So in the Hamilton area, so we see like a four or five days heat waves. What about in 20 years? This becomes 20 uh, heat waves. Yikes, that would be very so, concerning.
0: Professor rain we'll, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks for your time this yeah. morning. Thank you very much. La Harain is a professor of Earth, Environment and Society and the director of the McMaster Center for Climate Change at McMaster University. 20-day heat waves? No, thanks.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: We have some exciting news to share with you because Fringe Fest is back. And here to talk about it is Rose Hopkins, associate producer of Hamilton Fringe Festival in studio. Good morning. Thanks for coming in.
5: Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. So
0: things are underway.
5: Yes. It, yeah, we had our kickoff event last night at our outdoor Fringe Club stage uh, just outside Theater Aquarius. Mm-hmm. So the artists are here. They're ready. We're excited. Super excited to get going.
0: Is there some anxiousness? Is it like uh, they can't wait to perform or are they kind of worried? Over what are some of the emotions? I think feeling?
5: like all all of the above. Yeah. Some of our artists call this time of year Fringe Miss, So it's a really great opportunity, <laughs> opportunity for them to come together as a community. So seeing everyone meet each other last night was really exciting. So. I think they're excited, but of course, you know, always a little nerve wracking. Yeah.
0: So what are some of the things that uh, our listeners can see and do at Fringe Fest this year?
5: There's a whole bunch of stuff. We have 50 different performing arts companies on 11 different stages. So there's always lots of uh, things to see. We have our outdoor Fringe Club stage just outside of Theater Aquarius on King William, mm-hmm. which has free programming. We have some family Fringe stuff going on. So um, lots to see and lots to do.
0: Nice. And so you mentioned Theater Aquarius. Where else is this being set up?
5: Yeah, we have the, the Zoetic on the Mountain, Players Guild on Queen Street, the Westdale Cinema, the Staircase, uh, and so many more that I'm sure I'm forgetting. <laughs> um, so almost somewhere in every neighborhood. So somewhere close to you, there's probably a show to check out.
0: That's pretty cool because you're not asking people to go long distances, even though everything's kind of within town. But at least, you know, they can just hop out of their car, out of their house, and, you know, they're at an event.
5: Exactly, yeah.
0: Uh, You can go online for all the details at hftco.ca. Talk about bringing all these productions and people together who have a lot of different ideas and they have great shows and some may be testing something new for the first time. Uh, There's a lot that goes into this.
5: Absolutely, yeah. So the Fringe Festival is actually a movement of festivals that take place all over the globe. It started in Edinburgh in the 1940s as a way to kind of rebel uh, against the art that was generally being programmed or curated. So the Fringe Festival is by a lottery system, so any almost anyone can enter and mm-hmm. hope to get in. That means there's lots of people who are trying new things, taking big risks, lots of different kinds of performance happening as well. So it's a really great lineup of like dance, theater, comedy, music, yeah. all happening together at the same time.
0: Is there a qualification process, i.e., I have an idea for a one-man show and I have to prove to you to, to make this you know worthwhile to people who are going to be spending some time at the franchise. Mm-hmm.
5: There isn't. Oh, and wow. That,
0: this is great news. <laughs>
5: <laughs> that is part of the magic. So it means that anyone Whoa. can participate. Really low barrier for entry. Um, and so it does mean as an audience member, you're never quite sure what you're going to get. Yeah. It might be someone's first show ever or it might be like a veteran performer um, showing you something they've been working on for ages. So yeah, you really have to come with a bit of a sense of curiosity and adventure, but always a good time and always something to see.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it was was it last year that we had the big hands production for the first time? or the giant purple hands? I'm not sure if you remember that or not.
5: Oh my gosh, I actually wasn't around last oh, okay. year, but <laughs> but maybe that sounds
1: exciting.
0: <laughs> I'm pretty sure the yeah, it was last year that the I don't I think it was just called big hands cool. and they were a traveling group and they had like you know a, a, basically a rock band performing with hands like in motion. It was kind of oh my neat. gosh,
5: amazing. Yeah, I do know that this year we have the most out of town artists than we've ever had really? people from across the country even I think a couple international folks so yeah super exciting Hamilton's kind of getting cool like that
0: why why do you think that is the case is it just because the word is out that this is a cool festival to be a part of
5: yeah I think that also as like post pandemic as people are starting to venture out a little more um people have like missed visiting other fringes uh and getting to connect with those different communities so yeah Maybe that's why. That could be it,
0: yeah. <laughs> Rose Hopkins is our guest. Uh, Rose is an associate producer at the Hamilton Fringe Festival. Uh, you're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Thanks again for coming in studio. Thank you. you. always get a nice vibe when, you know, guests are in studio to, to, to feel and, and see what they're doing. When it comes to tickets, what's the price point?
5: Uh, for our regular shows that are full length, so 60 or 90 minutes, mm-hmm. tickets are $12. Okay. Um, and there's a couple of fees online that you're asked to pay as well. And then we also have a short mini series. Those shows are like 20 minutes, and those are $8. Wow. Plus a ton of free programming at our Outdoor French Club stage.
0: That is so affordable. Like for a family of four... You go to the movie theater, you're spending a lot more than 12 bucks a pop.
5: Exactly. You're spending it on popcorn. Yes, <laughs> and all the money that you pay for tickets goes right back to the artists that you're seeing. So it's a great way. Support the artists, yeah. get some accessible theater going. Amazing.
0: That's a, obviously a win-win. I think last year as well, and this is probably a common occurrence at Fringe, is that audience participation for some shows, not all of them, is, is greatly encouraged because it makes the show work in that way. Are we going to see mm-hmm. a lot of
5: that? It will definitely depend on the show, but I know as an art, having performed in the uh, festival as well, just getting that feedback is so exciting to hear the audience responding, whether it's like through laughter or, um, you know, poignant silence. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, always super great to be there with the audience as well.
0: Okay. So as an associate producer, are you more excited in that role or when you were actually part of a production? because you don't have as much control now, right?
5: That's so true, that's so true. I really love wearing both hats. One of the themes of our festival this year is like how our producers and our artists wear so many hats. I think the Fringe Festival is also such a great uh, spot for artists to learn some of those. Producing administrative skills, that's something where I started. So I love I love being in both worlds. It's really, really great.
0: Sounds like a lot of fun, and it sounds like Fringe Festival will be fun as well. Check out uh, all the locations in town. And, uh, Rose, thanks for your time today. Thank you. That is Rose Hopkins, associate producer of Hamilton Fringe Festival.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It is
0: being called one of the top international festivals to watch. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. It is the 10th annual South Coast Jazz Festival, and Brantford and Port Dover are going to play host to it from August 11th to the 13th. Here to tell us all about it is Julianne Kochi, founding director of the South Coast Jazz Festival, who joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Julianne, good morning. How are you? Good
6: morning.
0: So, how has this become, as the Wall Street Journal puts it, one of the top international festivals to watch? What are you doing right? <laughs>
6: Well, that's a great way to start. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know what? It's It's been really, really interesting. You know, when I first started, I thought, well, I created this. So this is what's going to happen. Therefore, because I made it and I'm working so hard. So this is the way it's going to be. <laughs> and then you end up, you know, a few years in understanding that, you know, things just happen, things evolve. And then you just fasten your seatbelt and you go along for the ride. So I, I, you know, I just work super, super hard, really way too hard, and hope that it adds up to something. And I think a lot of the turning point, the pivot point, was um, during COVID. I mean, we started off right out of the gate. We were in um, uh, some wineries and stuff, and then we sold out with Holly Cole in 2015 at the Port Dover Arena. And you know, we've had like great artists like David Sanborn and Jane Bennett and KK. And just all sorts of, you know, Juno, Grammy, Order of Canada, Walk of Fame, artists, we've just really lucked out as far as being able to get that prestige right off the bat. But it was really COVID um, where I turned the TV, uh, I turned the, the whole entire festival into a TV show and everything was closed and everyone was available. So we just got some funding in 2020. And so that happened. And then 2021, we got the Digital Now grant made a couple of TV shows and now it's uh, one of them has been put on Stingray the jazz channel and that is like international all over the world for like the next 5 years so now we're doing it again because we just got Ontario Trillium Foundation and Ontario Creates and we're we're shooting again so we have a live show so when you come to the show you're part of a live theater audience recording as well
0: This year's festival is the 10th annual, so number one, happy anniversary. But I also understand you're going to be focused, or at least part of it is going to be focused on 10 decades of music. So talk a little bit about that.
6: Yes. So we had a whole series of different kinds of artists and we wanted to bring back some of our favorites. And like I said, you put on your seatbelt, you fashion for the ride. Um, so, you know, the way it's turned out is that we've got basically like a journey from the 30s um, until now, starting off with Alex Pangman. Um, she's Canada's sweetheart of swing. And um, then we we go through to the 80s with um, Mark Holmes and Platinum Blonde. And he's got a jazz club now in Toronto, Gene Darlene. So he's actually going to be singing a lot of stuff, including, of course, hits from Platinum Blonde. Nice. We, we have to have those, right? Yeah. And um, we've got Mark Kelso in the Jazz Exiles. Um, uh, they've been up for a couple of Junos as well. International uh, pianist and um, songwriter uh, Charu Suri. She's coming and she's doing... Really interesting stuff here. This this woman, I wouldn't be surprised if she wins a Grammy. I'm so thrilled to have her actually coming. Uh, she, she's she's got a twist. She's she's doing jazz. She's doing ragas, and she's doing a jazz basically version of that. And she's got a Sufi singer. It's incredible stuff. I mean, you have to be like ridiculously talented to to handle. And she's classically trained, so you just you, her fingers are doing everything that you could possibly imagine. Very high level stuff. Very cultural experience this year um at south coast jazz for sure
0: i understand as well that the sanderson center just down the road from us in branford is also going to be used this year
6: right so we are in port dover community center on august 11th with the local staged aged and mellow the feds and um route six crooner that's all local uh, entertainment here in port dover then we go to the sanderson center for the 12th which has all of the um people that I just actually mentioned and some other people we've got David Griffin and Carla Muller um Rock and Ray is going to be our announcer and we've got a lot of things up our sleeve for uh, announcements there and just some fun that we're going to be having at the Brantford Sanderson Center on the 12th And you can actually get tickets from the Sanderson Center as well as our website. And then on Sunday, we've got um, Juliet Dunn coming. And just a little plug for the Niagara Jazz. It's happening this weekend. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We love to plug everybody. Um, She's coming with her uh, Le Trio Parisienne. um, So we'll have a bit of French-English action going on there. And Indigenous artists, Gail Obadiah. And her, uh, she's got a singing group as well that will be coming. And uh, Alex Penguin, of course, um, ending off as our headliner there on Sunday for the free show in Brantford in Harmony Square.
0: And just reading up on the festival too, uh, you know, one of the main drivers or one of the main points you want to, uh, you know, get across is that this is accessible for everyone.
6: It really is. It's, it's. You know, back when we first started, we started off as a for-profit, and it just quickly became, you know, very large. Uh, faster than what we thought. So what we did is we became obviously like, you know, not for profit. We, we had to, you know, get into the grants and the mandate. I wanted to widen it right away. So we're South Coast Cultural Society and it's all about being as accessible and and available to everyone. And that includes our prices this year. We also have, um, I mean, it's $39 to go to three concerts at the Sanderson Center. You cannot beat that. (laughs) There's free shows in on Friday, and even the VIP seats on Friday are only $20, and that's table seating. And then, of course, Sunday is free. And with the $39, um, you, you can come for one show or you can come for all three shows. Of course, we want you to stay for all three shows because we're recording the TV show. But yes, absolutely accessible, including um, American Sign Language versions of the show. So we have like three full television shows with ASL performance, musical nice. performance, and completely accessible all. That's of amazing. Our- yeah, yeah, it's mm-hmm. going to
0: be a fun time. You can get your tickets and a lot more information online at southcoastjazz.com. Julianne, we'll have to leave it there. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. That is Julianne Kuchaki, the founding director of the South Coast
1: Jazz Festival. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: We're talking about, and we rarely do this on the show because I'm not a big fashionista. <laughs> and you would know it if you saw me, let me tell you. I'm not up on the latest fashion trends, but I had, I simply had to talk about the latest one on the show today because it's one of those when you, when you look at the pictures and you think about what is going on, you're thinking, <laughs> really, this is what we're doing now? So if you want to keep up with the latest fashion trend, the hottest trend right now, put on your pair of pants or, or shorts if you're going to wear those today. You're okay in doing that. You're still still trendy. You're still fashionable. But you're not only going to pull them on, you're going to unbutton that top button. And then after you unbutton that top button, you are going to fold the belt line over to create a cuff. And while you're at it, might as well take a selfie. That's right. People are unbuttoning their jeans or pants on purpose for the sake of fashion and then undoing that top button. And folding that belt line, if you will, over. And there you have it. That is the latest fashion trend. I mean, the only time I am potentially walking around with an unbuttoned pair of pants or shorts is perhaps after Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner (laughs) when things have gotten a little snug in the waistline area. And you got to give yourself a little bit of relief in that area of the body. That is really the only time, and I'm not even sure I'd walk around with the unbuttoned belt line and fold it over belt line. I'd be too afraid it would just fall down. So the latest fashion trend, undoing that top button and then folding over the belt line. So it made me think, where does this rank in the all-time goofiest fashion trends that have, that have, some have stood the test of time, others thankfully are no longer around, including in the 1900s. Yes, the turn of the 20th century. It was the Victorian era. Many women were clothed from top to bottom, but the corset was a big fashion trend. Suck in and tie it up. Thankfully, I think corsets are no longer around, at least the ones that are, you know, breaking your ribcage. The corset has come and gone. Uh, another fashion trend in the early 20th century was Edwardian hats. I mean, these were off-the-cuff, Titanic-era, big, big brimmed hats with feathers and bows and buckles and you name it. The bigger, the better. Edwardian hats, another fashion trend at the time, uh, we're one around now, unless you're going to the Kentucky Derby, and you are in the fashion faux pas category. Smoking jackets. Whatever happened to a good old smoking jacket? Well, number one, I don't condone smoking, no, longer, and, uh, and I don't, don't do so myself. But the smoking jacket at least looks nice. You know, Hugh Hefner really brought that into, I think, the mainstream uh, fashion trend. But it actually erupted back in the 1920s. And if you if you dig deep, it's actually got roots to the 1600s. And for half, I mean, it never really went out of style. Another fashion trend here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHMLs, you look at the best and some of the worst fashion trends. This one, I did not know this one started in the 30s in the gangster era, but it did. And that was shoulder pads. I remember this being a big thing in the 80s, maybe early 90s shoulder pads. Not only for men's suits, but for women's garments as well. The shoulder pads. Whoever thought that was a good idea, to walk around town or go to work looking like a linebacker. I don't know, obviously popular during the time. Here's another one, and I'm not sure this is a faux pas. I think this is still relatively fashionable, and that is cat eye glasses. Which came to be in the 1950s. Audrey Hepburn, in Breakfast at Tiffany's, made this fashionable in... Uh, the 1960s, but it actually came out of the 1950s. Running through some of the highs and lows of fashion trends as we reflect on the latest trend and undoing your top button and folding over that belt line to create a cuff. This is, honest to God, the latest fashion trend out there. Ask your grandkids or kids about it. They'll know. I had no idea. And I, I was talking to my daughter. I'm like, is this a thing? She's like, yeah, it's been around for about a year. I'm like, okay. I, mi- <laughs> I miss, I missed the memo on this fashion trend. In the 1960s, tie-dye was all over the place. The hippie uniform was in full effect. It hasn't really gone out of style. Tie-dye still around. You don't see much of it. But I'll give it a pat. I'll give it a green light. Tie-dye. The white gloves. And I know Michael Jackson popularized this with the one white glove that was, you know, studded with diamonds or Cubic zirconias, Or who knows What was on there Uh, But unless you're a butler Or maybe a Disney toon character You don't want to walk around In in white gloves I guess Uh, Another one would be Jumpsuits for men In the 1970s I'm glad I missed that boat Jumpsuits for men I mean this comes to mind Oh yeah Put on that full-length tuxedo onesie, bell bottoms and all. Oh, you are good to go. Which also brings me to wide-collared shirts of the 70s. I was watching. I think it was the Oscars earlier this year, and one of the presenters had a wide collar, and I mean a wide-collared shirt. It was so wide as he was walking down the road, he had wide load on the back of his shirt because it was that uh, wide. Uh, platform shoes. Hey, I'm a big Kiss fan. I love their platform shoes. I mean, it was. Decorated with other things as well. And here's another one. The Canadian tuxedo. No, no, no. This cannot be a fashion faux pas. The Canadian tuxedo, jean jacket, jeans. Heck, put on a jean shirt. That's two thumbs up. Two thumbs up. Uh, leg warmers, MC hammer pants, the saggy pants, uh, t shirts over long sleeve shirts. No, all thumbs down. All thumbs down. So there's are some of the uh, latest, or one of the latest fashion trends. I wouldn't recommend it. Unless, again, it's Thanksgiving dinner and you want to